Hello? Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? My keyboard. You're typing? Well, I'm getting ready to listen to a podcast. Do you like podcasts about scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite podcast about scary movies? Um, Now Playing. You know, the one hosted by Stuart, Arnie, and Marjorie who watch and review all movies in a series? Is that the one that's now reviewing the entire Scream movie series? Yeah, with the ghost face killer. I haven't seen that movie. The podcast has spoilers and harsh language, so you should watch the movie before you listen. Okay. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. Today we're discussing Scream 6, starring Melissa Barrera, Jasmine Savoy Brown, Jack Champion, Henry Zerny, Mason Gooding, Roger L. Jackson, Leanna Liberato, Dermot Mulrooney, Devin Dakota, Jenna Ortega, Josh Segarra, Skeet Ulrich, Samara Weaving, with Hayden Panettiere, and Courtney Cox. And this is credits order, folks, and... I think Jenna Ortega just didn't have the juice when she signed her Scream contract that she has today as Wednesday Adams. I'll say, Jesus. Directed by Matt Bettinelli-Open and Tyler Gillette. This is Arnie, the now-playing co-host who makes you want to scream. And Stuart. And this is Marjorie. And this feels like the 90s again, back when Scream movies came out every year. You know, last year, it was the 25th anniversary. Everyone was like, this is special that it's coming back. But Radio Silence, that's how I'm going to refer to the directing team, they're doing what Wes Craven did. They just like, okay, this is our gig now. And like a season of television, every year we got to produce. Everything is the same this time, except one key player. No Nev Campbell. Yeah, that was a pretty public salary dispute, you know? When they had the huge success that was Scream 2022, don't call it Scream 5. There is no Scream 5. It goes 4-6. Mm-hmm. When they had announced there would be a Scream 6, they were like, and we want Nev back, and we want Courtney back. And then Nev came out and was like, they aren't paying me enough. And she really got kind of nasty about it in my mind. She's like, I couldn't stand to go there and walk on the set every day feeling undervalued, <laughs> and it would be different if I was a man. Okay, can I just say something? Good riddance. I went back and I watched the whole series, and she's the biggest problem of them all. She was, no, I'll correct myself. She had the right energy for part one, but she never worked in any of the other ones. That third one, she was an acting student. She was the one that was supposed to go to Hollywood and have the career. And because she didn't want to go to the set back then in 1999, she ends up spinning that movie on the phone in the forest. You know what I mean? Like she never wants to be there. And so what a relief to finally just say, okay, go, you're free of this series. Go live your life and we can get people that actually want to do the job. I agree. I think she was the weakest link after the first couple. And I think in Scream 2022, she clearly didn't want to be there. And I think that 
her part was just blah and mm-hmm. could have been so much more, but it was just like kind of an afterthought, it seemed like. And here I will agree with Stuart for the most part. In Scream 2 and 3, especially 3, I felt like she didn't want to be there. In Scream 4, I wasn't quite sure. I was kind of iffy. But it felt like to me with last year's Scream, she was actually grateful for some work and she actually gave a good performance. I went back. I didn't rewatch the whole trilogy. I've seen the first three so many times. But I did rewatch four and five. And in five, I actually liked Nev. Yeah, I'll be generous and say that, yes, you wanted her back if you're having a requel for at least that one. But I don't feel like she's the anchor for where they're going. If they're going to grind out screen movies from now until, you know, 2050, I don't need her hanging on. I think her story is done. And I'm happy to see, okay. Hayden Pantier? (laughs) I know you're looking for some legacy character, but she was way dead. Very dead. When I rewatched 4, I even went back and double-checked after rewatching 4 because there's that scene at the end where Dewey is like, Gail and Sydney are fine. And it is not Gail, Sydney, and Kirby are fine. (laughs) (laughs) But don't get me wrong, Kirby was a real delight of that movie, a highlight of part four. So, good enough. If you insist that things are about getting back, if not to the original, but to earlier movies, uh, yeah, I'll take her. I thought we would get some new legacy characters. I'll be honest, after you did the talking you did, Arnie, you convinced me that Matthew Lillard, that Stuart, had to be the villain of this one. I went in fully expecting this to be a return to the original killer or co-killer. I thought so, too. I mean, I came in spoiler free. I watched the trailers, but I knew nothing about this movie coming in. I didn't even know Courtney Cox was back. I'd forgotten that announcement. So coming in, not knowing who the cast was, not looking at the wiki page or anything, not knowing Skeet Ulrich was coming back. I thought for sure it was going to be a secret that Matthew Lillard would return, but not yet. I still think every time, every Scream movie from now till eternity, I will think Matthew Lillard will return until he does. Yeah, there's always the next one, I suppose, but I predicted Courtney Cox was the opening kill. I knew very little other than they were going to New York City. I think the ad campaign did a big job of pushing that, and most of the people from the last one would be in it. And Courtney Cox has some moments in the trailer, so I figured, yeah, have her come out and be the big death scene in the opening, and then we can have the movie with the new people. I was happy to see Courtney Cox return because, I'll be honest, I didn't like Friends, and I used to hate her for some reason, and she's actually kind of fun now. So I was happy to see her come back. But you know what? They got to have, they killed Dewey last time. I just figured mm-hmm. they had to have, they're known for their opening kills. I just figured if Nev's already complaining about the salary, Courtney has friends money. She don't need <laughs> to do this. So why is she coming back except to die? That's my logic. Did you notice Courtney's an executive producer of this film? Oh, okay. I did not notice that, but okay. Yeah. So that's where the real money is. Yes, that's that's exactly it. And, you know, if you're executive producer, might as well put yourself in for a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. But we'll talk about it. I'm pretty sure this was intended to be Courtney Cox's last appearance. And then Mm -hmm. 
there's a dropped line of dialogue that maybe she'll come back. Yeah, that was a surprise, wasn't it? I thought, like, I processed her leaving, and then we were told things at the end that made me go, wait, what? But yes, I agree. I went into this, you know, hopeful. Uh, This has, for me, been a pretty consistent franchise. I've changed my arrow on four, and I recommend them all at this point. So going in, I expected to have a routine screen time. I was hoping it was going to go better for Ghostface than Jason in Manhattan. That was my hope, was that they were going to be able to to work that New York gimmick a little bit better than Friday Part 8. You did catch the Friday Part 8 call-out, right? There's a moment where in the opening kill... It's on the TV. Yeah. Yeah. And... True to that movie, they're not actually in New York. This is Canada. Check the credits and you'll find out that this is all uh, Montreal. Well, the alley was a big clue right there. Yeah. We saw this on a Saturday afternoon. We were hoping for a good crowd. You know, I still think back to the first time I saw the original Scream and somebody in the audience did scream and it was kind of a funny moment and... A real charged crowd. And even seeing Scream 3, it was a packed crowd. I had to sit way up front. And I couldn't find a packed showing, you know? Mm. We looked at several different times, and we ended up going to one that was about one-third full. I feel bad because they have one of those. It's pretty common these days. The cast comes out right before the movie begins, and Melissa Barrera and Courtney Cox thanking you for coming to a movie theater and putting down your phone and having a, quote, killer time. And I'm like, yeah, there's only 12 people here. (laughs) I know that you wanted more. It's expecting the highest opening of any Scream film, over 40 million. Mm, Okay. I was at least delighted by the fact that it was a field trip, that there was a group of high school kids being chaperoned by a woman who says, I'm the teacher, when she was (laughs) buying the tickets ahead of me. So, yeah, I felt... This would be interesting to see how a new generation is going to take something meant for young people, but now is, yeah, 27 years into its career. I'll just go ahead and preview. They were mostly on their phone, getting up, going back and forth to concession and talking. They had to be shushed at one point, so they behaved like teenagers. Were they shushed by you? No. There was like (laughs) uh, two other middle-aged people in the theater. I had high hopes that we were going to get a kind of theater experience for a screen movie is there were probably I think like two to three girls sitting in front of us and they're all on their phones like through most of their previews I'm like okay maybe they'll scream or something or be really excited Mm -hmm. nope they did nothing it was the most lackluster horror movie I think I've been in nobody screamed nobody like screamed at the screen that something was going to happen or anything like that there was no gasps or anything like that Yeah, that's totally why you want to be in a movie theater. Yeah, I could definitely have this experience at home and it'd be a lot more convenient. But yeah, you want to know how other people are taking it in. Uh, There was a little bit of tittering at the end. I I heard some cheers as they built through the climax. But for the most part, yeah, not a big-sized crowd. Maybe they were scared off by the 3D ticket prices. I saw mine in Real D, which I'm going to go ahead and just say... Do not bother. This movie is very dark and there's almost no depth perception. You can kind of barely in the latter scene where they're climbing across the alley. You realize that you're wearing glasses in that moment. But otherwise, (laughs) yeah, it's not worth it. It shocked me that this was coming out in 3D. They didn't make a big deal out of it. They shouldn't. When we were looking at Showtimes, I saw 3D and I'm like, this movie? I mean, I know they do that. 
for Marvel movies, but this movie, 3D, shocked me, but I ended up seeing it just on the Super DLX screen. I prefer the better audio and things. The 3D was all on the small screens. Mm, okay, yeah, wise choice. I would have rather had a more immersive sound experience than, yeah, that 3D is pretty terrible. So, not recommend for that, but let's find out about this movie. Arnie, give him the plot, and we'll find out what happens in New York. Or Montreal. Right. <laughs> It's been a year since the events of the previous Scream film, and the four survivors of that round of Woodsboro murders have moved to New York City. Those core four are Sam Carpenter, played by Melissa Barrera, her younger sister Tara, played by Jenna Ortega, and then the twins Mindy and Chad, played by Jasmine Savoy Brown and Mason Gooding. Those latter three are in New York attending Blackmore University. Sam, however, is just there because of her obsessive need to protect Tara, no matter how much Tara may protest. Sam is having problems of her own, though, as internet rumors have started to spread that Sam was the real Woodsboro murderer, framing Amber and Richie, who were the killers in last year's film, if you don't remember. These internet attacks have segued into real-world problems as strangers confront Sam on the street, calling her a murderer. But there is a murderer about... Someone else has donned the ghost face mask and is killing students at Blackmore. First killed are two film students who were obsessed with the fictional Stab movie franchise. Well, and their professor. Yeah, well, she wasn't killed by the real ghost face. Yeah. Sam is the primary suspect as her driver's license was found at the scene. Who can the murderer be? Is it one of the core four from the previous film having snapped due to their trauma? Is it Sam's therapist, Dr. Stone? Is it Sam's secret boyfriend and neighbor, Danny? Is it Sam and Tara's slutty, sorry, sex-positive roommate, Quinn? (laughs) Is it Chad's sex-starved roommate, Ethan? Mindy's girlfriend, Annika? All are suspects for police detective Wayne Bailey, played by Dermot Mulrooney. Well, all except Quinn, who is the detective's daughter. Also investigating the crimes is FBI agent Kirby Reed, a returning Hayden Panettiere who somehow survived the fourth film. And looking into things for a while is news reporter Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox returning for her sixth film. However, Gail gets attacked and is taken out of the movie pretty quickly. Also killed are Quinn, Annika, Dr. Stone, and some boy that Quinn was screwing. Quinn's death gets Detective Bailey taken off the case, though he continues to investigate on his own time. On a New York subway, Mindy gets stabbed but survives, taken by EMTs. Attempting to trap the killer, Sam, Tara, and Chad, plus Kirby, go to an abandoned theater which has been turned into a shrine to the stab films and the Woodsboro killings. There, Ghostface, or the multiple Ghostfaces, I should say, reveal themselves. There are three killers this time. The lead killer is Detective Bailey. He was the father of one of the killers in the previous film, Richie, and wanted to avenge his son's death at the hands of Sam. Aiding Detective Bailey is Ethan, who is secretly Detective Bailey's son, Richie's brother, and the other ghost face is Quinn. Her death earlier had been faked by Detective Bailey. Those three mercilessly stabbed Chad and Kirby, leaving just Sam and Tara. Sam shoots Quinn in the head, Tara smashes a TV on Ethan's head, and then Sam, who is Billy Loomis's daughter if you forgot, goes psycho and stabs Detective Bailey repeatedly. At the end, it turns out Gail, Chad, and Mindy all somehow survived their brutal attacks. Sam agrees to give Tara more space while Tara agrees to finally go to therapy, 
and credits roll. And as I start, I've mentioned already that this series is known for having a big celebrity kill at the opening. All right, Samara Weaving is the star of Ready or Not, the Radio Silence movie before they got into the Scream franchise, but I don't know if she qualifies. For a minute, I thought it was Margot Robbie. The Australian accent threw me. <laughs> I don't know what's in the water in Australia, but those hot blondes, but they do tend to look alike. But I think Samara Weaving is worthy of the opening kill. I knew she was in this film and, you know, she was in Three Billboards. She was in Ready or Not. She was in Bill and Ted 3. So, yeah, she was one of the daughters, Ted's or Bill's. I don't remember. (laughs) I don't think it matters. (laughs) Yeah. So I really was thinking, okay, she's the opening kill. I could see her on par with where Drew was when the first Scream came out, which was Mm. kind of not Mm -hmm. at the peak of her career. Come on, Drew Barrymore will always be in a special place in Gen X's heart because she kept E.T. in her closet. You know, like that's no. She was as big as you could get to us because she had been in something that big. Maybe Samira Weaving has been on iCarly or something. I don't know. But I don't think she has much cachet for young people. I'm not sure this movie does have a lot of cachet with young people. Again, look at the crowd. It was mostly old people taking children to see this. She was in the first season of Ash vs. the Evil Dead, though, so she may have some cachet for horror fans. Okay. Well, here she's playing a film professor. God bless her. The humanities (laughs) are totally in the toilet right now. I don't know who's taking her class, but... Yes, she is transplanted from Australia and obviously hooking up with someone that she met online who is calling and saying they're just trying to find her, but they got lost down an alley. And that's when you realize they're not really in New York because of the alley. And that just really irks me because there's not alleys in Manhattan. You know, Brock said the same thing and he lived in New York, but some of our listeners have said for every rule, there's an exception. There are a couple of alleys. I wondered if this was way up on the north side. Maybe there's a few up there. But yeah, I'm happy that Samara Weaving gets to use her native Australian accent. I've normally seen her playing an American, and here she's able to talk as an Aussie who's a film professor teaching a slasher class. That sounds like a class I would have taught in college. (laughs) Right, yeah. At the community college level. It's just hard for me to imagine. I don't know. I don't know what the state of film studies is. I went to film school, and I feel like if you're not giving people practical advice on how to use the equipment, and more importantly, the connections, deconstructing old movies, that's a lot of money to spend to uh, get that degree. I'll just put it that way. But yes, she is got, I don't know. I feel like that was the strength of the original Scream trilogy, right? That it was so savvy about talking about the horror genre. It feels like a burden to these new Scream movies that they got to come up with new rules and new insights on the horror genre. That stuff is harder to do now, six movies in. She says that she likes teaching the class because you learn about cultures from the times that they're made, but what would she be talking about? We'll hear the word giallo, and I do think that there is an obsession with stabbing people in the eye and mouth in this movie. (laughs) So I do think that if this movie has a reference point for horror, last time it was elevated horror, this time it is the old Italian slashers, the giallos. Well, even later on, somebody throws out Argento's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I was like, oh, hey, wait a second. That's a little different than what they, it's a little more highbrow, I kind of thought, than what usually 
they try to do with Scream just by throwing that mention out there. Maybe even academic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are dealing with characters named Carpenter after Halloween and so many other characters just after the classic slasher films of the 80s. I was shocked how fast this first death happened because I'm used to these opening deaths really stretching out. But yeah, they get this professor to walk out into the alley and then the voice on the phone changes to the modulated ghost face voice and it's like you teach a class in slashers and yet you walk down a dark alley and she's stabbed and dead. I'm like, well, I tend to think of these being longer, more drawn out. Surprising. Sometimes two deaths. Yeah, right. Well, they're more cat and mouse in all the other movies where... The person who is playing Ghostface toys with them a little bit and tortures them as far as like building up the fear. This was just she walked down the alley to try to locate this guy and then she was stabbed. So it totally lacks the psychological aspect that it had in all the other movies. But of course, that's the point is that you think, oh, well, this is underwhelming. And then they do the thing that they've never done before. Ghostface, the mask spattered with her blood, leans in and then rips it off. And suddenly we're looking at the little kid from Grand Budapest Hotel. And I'm thinking, oh, they're not even going to play the murder mystery angle this time. We know who the killer is from the opening kill. I've never seen Grand Budapest Hotel but it was killing me. Who is this guy? I know Tony Revolori, but not by name. I knew his face without that goatee. It's bugging me. It's bugging me. It finally clicked. It's Flash Thompson from the Spider-Man films. The one who was like, I say penis, you say Parker. The newer ones, yes. Yeah. The most recent version. The least buff Flash Thompson. (laughs) Yeah. But yes, and he is wearing a giallo shirt that's four flies on gray velvet in Italian, an Argento film. So again, yeah, that makes me think that uh, like this one is going to go more for that aesthetic. And here I'm like, they're finally mixing up the formula. We're going to know this whole movie who the killer is. That's really fresh. You know, this has been a series of whodunits. And to know whodunit at the beginning, how is that going to work? How is this related to the friend group of Sam and Tara? This is really (laughs) kind of exciting me. And yet I'm also a little bit nervous because this could backfire tremendously. Right. Here's the thing. I was on to them. I knew that this wasn't going to be the guy that was terrorizing all of them. The fact that we kept following him, the fact that he straps on a book bag and is now suddenly heading back to Blackmore College, bumping into our star, Tara Carpenter, on the way home, saying, I'll see you at the frat party, and then getting to his apartment decorated in movie posters, I go, oh, okay, he is the real opening kill. Is this our first male opening kill? No, Leif Schreiber. Oh, that's right, that's right. When he wanted out of the franchise, too. Oh, I forgot he was even in there. Mm-hmm. All those people too good for Scream 3. <laughs> no, he was in, he was the death of Scream 3. I said too good for Scream 3, though. Like Nev, he didn't want to be there. Oh, I see what you're saying. He was there, but only just to disappear. And notice this character is named Jason. Ha ha ha. And Jason, yes, takes Manhattan, is playing on his TV, uh, referencing the idea that, yes, we are now in this New York setting. How is that going to play? Is this a city full of killers? We find out that this is a 
disgruntled film student who murdered that woman, trapped her in that alley because he got a C minus in an Argento paper. Are we in a world now, and New York City might be it, where everyone potentially has a ghost face mask in their closet and goes and kills when they get mad? It seems rather convenient. I mean, in this universe, you'd have an excuse for getting mad or a way to get out of it to throw on a ghost face mask. Yeah, everyone's a ghost face. And this movie Mm kind of gets to that idea much later. I feel like it's underdeveloped with the whole angle of social media attacks and assassinating character. But yes, I kind of got that sense of like, wow, anyone can be the killer because we're all potential murderers of grievance. Yeah, it's a game of hot and cold. The phone rings. His roommate, Greg, is baiting him to a New York apartment. I don't know how long this game could last. You look, <laughs> you look in the laundry closet and the fridge, and that's about the size of the apartment. Good, you know, under the bed, maybe. I appreciate this movie for having semi-realistic New York apartments because his is pretty small. Later, we're going to see Sam and Tara have like four roommates in order to afford their place and Sam's working two jobs just to pay the rent. I do appreciate that little bit as compared to, as Marjorie referenced, Friends, where they have these huge luxury apartments and no work. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Greg is beheaded in the refrigerator and then Jason is going to get it pretty quick. And I'm like, okay. We're back on the normal page. Who is the ghost face? Why did they want to kill Jason? A telling line, though, right before we jump to the, you know, intertitle, Scream 6. Who gives a fuck about the movies? This might be the first one, I'm thinking, in which, yeah, it's about social media and, you know, like, grievance. As opposed to the idea that someone is trying to recreate a famous movie or famous kill. They back away from that, but that's my expectation. Suddenly, we're in a world where the Scream franchise will be less informed by slasher films. The whole copycat aspect goes back to the copycat movie, which had Harry Connick Jr. in it as a killer who copycatted famous serial killers and murderers, too. It wasn't a very good movie, Mm -mm. but that's been done before where somebody who copycats everything. Yeah, it could be real-life murders as opposed to the movies. Let's just face it. If they're trying to go for a teen audience, that younger and younger audience cares less and less about Jason, Freddy. Well, maybe Michael Myers is still cool, but you know what I mean? Like, the thing that was so informative in the 1990s for people that grew up watching 80s slasher movies, the kids today are not growing up watching 80s slasher movies. So you just have to step away from that. Well, that was referenced in the last one, Scream 2022, with Jenna Ortega's first whole scene where she talks about liking the Babadook better and it was more, yeah, elevated horror. So that kind of goes back to that, too. But, you know, one person that always could be the killer, it's an interesting tease for a final girl. We have this Samantha Carpenter, the older sister, who has the blood in her of the original killer. That her father, it was revealed, was Skeet Ulrich, Billy Loomis, even sometimes when she's looking in mirrors, can see him. Although I don't see Skeet Ulrich when I look at that. I see a middle-aged man with Botox and go, oh, that's (laughs) supposed to be Skeet? I think they CGI-de-aged him. It doesn't look right. He does not look like Johnny Depp. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know in the last film they did CGI de-aging to make him look like he did in that first Scream. I think they did it here, but I also think maybe they didn't have the time for the CGI. They always make him in glass this time. In the last one, he'd be in mirrors so you could see him. But here he's just in transparent glass where you see a shadow of him. So it didn't feel as good as in Scream 2022, but... I didn't think he looked like a middle-aged Botoxed man. <laughs> he does not look like Skeet Ulrich. Like, some people do that. They, they grow out of their youthful look. They do not resemble who they were as a teenager. He's definitely one of them. But my point is that Samantha has mental health issues, and that's why she's talking to a New York psychiatrist who's prescribing pills for six months, but hasn't heard her story. That sounds true to form. Like, I was surprised that the shrink was actually like, Oh, maybe you should tell me your backstory. Like, usually they're fine just, like, writing the prescription. But when she tells her backstory, it's kind of fun that she enjoyed stabbing Richie. And it's also a way, if you hadn't done what we did and go back and rewatch Scream 5, to catch audiences up on who Richie is and that it was killed by Sam. Yeah, it's definitely for those that are new to the franchise or it's been 14 months. Maybe you forgot stuff. I had even in watching the movie from theaters last year. I was glad to have rewatched it the day before I saw this movie. Yeah, but this movie is going to help you remind that, yeah, this is a woman that is influenced by the original killer. Could be a killer again. Again, a world where everyone is potentially a serial killer. And... You know, her therapist, like, I'm going to have to report you, wants her to leave. You know, we know he's dead meat. That was one of the best cases of foreshadowing, I think, this entire movie is clearly he would die soon and she'd get blamed for it. Yeah. Has no empathy for her. And yeah. So, yeah, it, we're looking forward to that one. Scream movies, every slasher franchise needs a body count. And so we've got one marked for death right from the top here. We're caught up. And she's heading home, seeing the police outside the apartment of the film school student that just got hacked up and thinking, I need to get in touch with Tara. And we are introduced to roommate Quinn here. And Quinn, I think every single time we're introduced to her, she's banging some new dude in her bedroom. It's actually only once, but yes, it's implied that she is always with other dudes. Yes. No, later on when she's killed, there's another guy in there. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was wondering who that was. Okay, that was her one night stand. Okay. Oh, I thought it was the same guy, wasn't it? You never see this guy at the beginning, so I don't know. But the joke is made that the Sam assumes it's the guy she was previously with, and he goes, who's that? So, yes, it's a promiscuous roommate seems like another one to add to the body count. Quinn, I don't know if that's a reference to Harley Quinn. Maybe. Anyway, yes, Tara has not come home. We already know because she bumped into Jason while he was on the way back from killing the professor in the alley that she is hanging out at a frat party. And true to form, maybe a lot has changed between my youth and kids today, but frat parties still look like frat parties when we get to this one. Lots of shots, lots of sex. And we're reintroduced to Chad as well. Chad is there with his roommate Ethan trying to be a good wingman to Ethan, trying to get some girls to talk to him without much luck. Here's the thing. I guess watching that last movie, I felt like Tara was so much younger than the other ones. I didn't realize she was the same grade as them. 
The idea that they've all moved from Woodsboro to New York, I mean, they'll try to explain that as they were bonded by the experience, that psychologically they protect each other now. But I would have thought she had a couple more years of high school. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I thought in the first one, Jenna Ortega looked exceptionally young, like she was still maybe like... 15, 16. Mm-hmm. And it turns out as of 2023, she's actually only 20 years old. So she was still a late teenager mm-hmm. in that movie. And even here, she still looks pretty young. So she probably was still a late teen when making this new screen movie. Jasmine Savoy Brown, who is her classmate, one of the twins, she's actually 28. Yes. I feel that. So it's kind of tracking. And then the sister, Sam, the actress is like in her mid 30s. Yeah. So it is very much where Jenna Ortega looks like a child based on the age of the people that she is in the movie with. How old is Cuba Gooding Jr.'s kid? Because they're going to have a romance in this one. I don't remember that being a thing. But I was like, this feels inappropriate. Like, we're supposed to be worried about date rape guy that's taking her upstairs. But when Cuba saves her, I'm also thinking that might be a crime. I had no idea Mason was Cuba Gooding Jr.'s son, but he's 26 years old. Yeah, it feels that. I didn't know that either until this moment. So thank you, Stuart. Oh, really? You can't tell? Yeah. I mean, look at him. He just, I think, almost spitting image. Yeah, I thought he looked familiar, but I still don't see it in looking at him. They look like his dad. Mm. Okay. Yeah, they do that a lot. They try to get the siblings of famous. There's been a Culkin. Julia Roberts' niece was in one of them. You know, they try to do that. Dennis Quaid's kid was the killer yes. Richie in the last one. Mm-hmm. So this is a Nepo baby franchise is what you're saying. Kind of. I think they enjoy that connection because, you know, Frank Stallone would be in like the B slasher movie from the 80s. You know, that's kind of it's adjacent to fame sometimes is the best that a slasher can do. But yes, so Tara is trying to break away. If there's an arc here for her, it's that she is tired of people like me saying she looks like a child. If she wants to sleep around and go to keggers, it's her right. She's in college now. Yeah, it's so odd that they all go to the same college. They move from Woodsboro, which I did not realize was in Michigan. For some reason, I thought this was just a small California town. No, it is. The Michigan thing was to throw people off. Oh, duh. Okay, I totally missed that. I had the same thought, Marjorie. I was like, wait, that is not Michigan. That is definitely California that we've been in the previous films. So, yeah, I wondered if the Michigan thing was a misdirect. Yeah, I think what we learn here is that the things that went down in Scream 5 are notorious. We live in a viral age, and so there are opinions about what happened that night. And uh, Sam, once she shows up to rescue her sister, everyone whips out their phone. They know her as the psycho killer. She has this reputation that follows her. Okay, but why didn't they just change their name? I don't know if you guys remember. Well, I'm sure you do. Maybe our listeners don't. Maybe some are too young. But Amy Fisher, mid-90s. Of course. Played by Drew Barrymore and Alyssa Milano. Yes, there were two movies, two competing movies about her. It was Joey Botafuco. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Because that was like at the very beginning of like AOL and because back when, guys, we didn't have like Internet like we have today. We had to go through like AOL to get to the Internet. And she was very notorious for what happened. And she ended up changing her name to get away from the notoriety. And she still lives in, I believe, the New York area. But she's completely changed her name to get away from that, which seems like in the Internet 
age, that would be something that you would do instead of just moving to a different city and saying, oh, yeah, I'm from Michigan when really you're from California. Mm, Yes. Why haven't they gone into hiding? I don't know. Here's the honest truth. I couldn't remember their names from the last movie. So that's just (laughs) it's that. Hello, Samantha. Not quite the same thing as hello, Sydney. I just I remembered them from the movie, but their names didn't stick. So. They could have changed them and I wouldn't have known as an audience member. But your point is valid. Yeah. And stay off the Internet. I mean, that seems like don't have a digital footprint. That would be the easiest thing right there to avoid all that is just don't get on the goddamn Internet. Yeah, but that's not going to stop people talking about you. But you wouldn't even know it and they wouldn't know who you were. But they're confronting her in real life and she was on the news from the first film. They'll find her. And I mean, how many people have deleted their Internet profile And yet, you know that walking down the street, some people still would say some stuff. Yeah, and here they make it obvious that they bait her. Samantha is just trying to walk with her sister anonymously, and a woman throws a Diet Cherry Coke on her so that she'll get mad and yell, and then they can film that and say, here's the proof that this woman is psycho. All that people see on the internet is a a woman raging out at another woman walking down the street. They didn't know that she was, you know, splashed. Yeah, even if she removed her digital footprint, it can't stop strangers from filming you. Mm-hmm. You have to become a recluse. Yeah. So, again, that's a different way of thinking about stalking and slasher and horror is that everywhere you go, it's an idea that is underdeveloped. I agree. I, I wish we had some more time to explore this, but this movie is going to be pretty concentrated. It happens all within, what, about 48 hours before Halloween? And I think we're literally picking up one year after the crimes of Woodsboro last movie. So it's, I think happening uh, either last Halloween or this Halloween. They mentioned that the previous killings happened in 2022, which I'm not sure if that's a continuity error, but I think that puts this movie, yeah, six months in the future from when it's released. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for, as everyone is potentially a suspect, But there are prime suspects. Obviously, the people around Samantha and Tara, if it's not Samantha herself, should be on our list of killers. Are you playing that game? Because I believed that Matthew Lillard was going to be the killer, I didn't really play the whodunit game. I wasn't sitting there going, it's going to be her or it's going to be him. But did you guys have suspects? I did. And mainly because that's the fun, I think, in these kinds of movies is trying to figure out who the actual killer is. Sure. So I had three suspects. I was thinking Gail Weathers because she wrote the book or Kirby or Dermot Mulroney because one, I thought also like you guys said, Kirby was dead, but maybe she survived because she had that little tiny scar. But and people seem to survive these stab wounds, even though they're horrendous. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was one of those three. And I actually was leaning towards Gail Weathers because she had done something so irredeemable that I thought that this would be also a great way for Courtney Cox to get out of the franchise and be killed. I was playing this game completely, and the less a character was focused on, the more I suspected the character. Okay. But yet, I'll say the one I kept coming back to was the police detective, Dermot Mulrooney. He's older than all the rest, and he's Quinn's dad, but they keep talking, and... Here's what clued me in. Quinn is having a conversation with Tara and Quinn is like talking about how she lost her brother in a car wreck. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
That's a strange detail to throw in there. And then after Quinn dies, you get Dermot Mulroney going, both of my children. And I'm like, both? What happened to that other child? You're making a big deal about this. I don't think it was a car accident. It's just a strange detail to write in. So I was looking at him, who I couldn't figure out is who are his minions. And I felt Ethan was just too obvious, but I kept going back to Ethan. Right. So we have Quinn, I already mentioned, is the sex positive roommate. And Ethan is Chad's roommate. Like he is at that frat party and he's shy. Chad keeps trying to push him. I feel like this movie is so desperate to connect with young people. They're grabbing onto lingo. Like he's a snack. He's a snack. I'm like, no one will be talking like this next year. You should probably let that go. (laughs) But yes, I think if you're looking at people that we aren't supposed to be looking at, uh, he seems to have the least connection to anyone. He's the virgin, and he's the one that's supposedly at the econ lectures when all the pivotal things are happening. So you didn't think it was him? I thought he was too obvious, and I was wrong. Yeah, and I wasn't sure. All I knew was I kept going back to Dermot Mulroney. Well, here's the other thing. Dermot Mulroney is kind of a star, too. If you're going to bring someone back for something like this, it tends to be someone who... Has something. Now, Richie in the last one was kind of out of left field, but he was a Nepo baby. I mean, he was on The Boys. I mean. I don't watch that. Yeah, but it's a big show. Yeah. But what I'm saying is you don't have Dermot Mulroney being a movie without him being something. You know what I'm saying? Agreed. By the way, did you guys recognize Ethan? I don't know how you could, but there's so many years have passed since he filmed his scenes and we reviewed the movie. But we just reviewed a movie where he starred in it. No, who was he? Avatar 2, he's the wild child. He's the one kid that isn't blue. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I know he looks so much older because they filmed that like eight years ago, probably. Why do they keep giving this kid terrible hair? These two movies now, they've given this kid like absolutely terrible hair. (laughs) That's his thing. They can't all be blessed like us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think there's another suspect to look at, but he's so peripheral. Like, I just keep forgetting about him. But it's mentioned the fact that Sam is not ready to date again because the killer was her boyfriend last time. But she's been making eyes at this guy that irons shirtless across the way from their apartment across the window, kind of Hitchcock rear window style. He's always lurking. We'll see later. He seems just to be going to the mailbox and suddenly he's on her and we realize they have a secret affair they keep from Tara. He was too obvious of a choice, I feel. I don't know. He just was too obvious, I thought, to make him the killer. And he also looked like he was super old, even compared to her in her 30s. Like, this seemed like a guy in his 40s that she was hooking up with. But he was also kind of a nothing character, too. Well, he's mysterious, right? Like, he's definitely established as a guy we know nothing about. And what is he doing? Is it convenient that he lives uh, across the way from them? Or is he stalking them? looking at them. Yeah, I think they're all obvious on one level. You could say they all have inherent, something sticks out about them. Dermot Mulroney, I agree. You wouldn't hire someone of his caliber and give him nothing to do, the dad role to do. That doesn't feel right. So I feel like, again, they could all be on the list, but I didn't have a list because what we're going to find out is that at each kill, a mask is left and there is going to be a countdown. The first mask they found was Richie's mask from the last movie. And in concurrent murders and attacks, 
more masks are going to be from part four, part three, going down to part one. The idea is that they're going to get to the original killer. They want us to think it's Sam and Skeet Ulrich, but I'm thinking, nope, that's going to be Stu Matthew Lillard. But would it be a cheat if the killer unmasked at the end and it's someone you hadn't seen in the movie yet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally. That's terrible screenwriting. Nobody does that. No better way to anger an audience than to say, and who did it is someone you could have never guessed. Yeah. You got to follow the Scooby-Doo rules of unmasking and old man withers. Mm -hmm. When we didn't have any word about Matthew Lillard, I sort of started to rule him out for this film. Yeah, as you should. And I think if you bring him back, you wouldn't make him the killer. You'd Mm -hmm. make him something else. But yeah, I did enjoy the game. And the fun thing is, as the kills happen, which really is the joy of any slasher film, whittling down that list. I would also say the fun of any slasher is usually the slashing, but I really enjoyed Ghostface getting a shotgun. I'm going to say when the girls get called down to the station and they end up fighting a Ghostface that chases them into a convenience store, it was a really new take and a very New York vibe that he gets the shopkeeper's gun and hunts them down the aisles. I think that scene had some good suspense. It did remind me of Jason takes Manhattan when they run into the cafe and say someone's trying to kill us. I was waiting for the clerk to say, welcome to New York. But other than that, I thought this was good at how every single patron just gets the hell out of that store. Nobody's trying to help Sam and Tara. Yeah, it's a good scene. So is that the scene that establishes that that's not necessarily a true ghost face killer because I don't think Ghostface has picked up a gun before. No, that's what I'm saying. This is a new look. Yeah. And it feels like a new vibe. We've had the killer say, who gives a fuck about the movies? And now he's picking up a gun, which was never a weapon used to kill anyone in the movies. It's really leading me to the idea that this is a different motive. And I think, again, a wise one for this series to abandon. It was the identity of the first trilogy that we talk about 80 slasher films But I think you have to get away from that in 2023. But they do have that scene, and it feels almost obligatory, where you have Mindy. And let's not forget that Mindy and Chad are the niece and nephew of Randy, who was played by Jamie Kennedy. And she's like, now this is an ongoing franchise, and there's rules for a franchise. Yeah. The first is everything is bigger, bigger budget, bigger body count. And then whatever happened last time, expect the opposite. And the third rule, which does not prove true, is no one is safe. (laughs) Yeah, I actually feel like that was a strain, right? Like that was, yes, we have to do this and this is the character to do this. But actually, those rules do not influence anyone's behavior in the film. Like they don't turn to those rules to think about what they should do next. And that's because there are no real franchise rules, by the way. Like, this is just poppycock that they've made up just so that they can give her a speech. Because Mindy's a fun character, and Randy is important to the franchise itself, but just doesn't have a whole lot to say about the social media aspect, which is, I think, the real threat. The idea that danger can come from anybody, and everyone has hostile judgments and wants to assassinate your character. Yeah, it does make me wonder... 
can you have a Scream film that isn't a meta commentary about film? Yeah. Like if there is a Scream 7 and based on this weekend's opening box office, I think it's likely, then can you get away with just not having, quote unquote, the rules at all? Yeah, I'm thinking they're going in that way. At the same time, I'm thinking, but Stu's the killer. So I'm really torn, and it feels like a franchise that's at a crossroads. Do we just do what we've done in the past, or do we try to find a new way? Now that Sydney's not here, now that we recognize the limitations of exploiting jokes from 40-year-old slasher movies, uh, yeah, it's an interesting moment for Scream. Yeah, I think the only rule of an ongoing franchise is it's really hard to keep it fresh. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're following that rule. And you throw in a lot of cameos like Kirby that blows in here. She's now uh, even more surprising that she survived the fourth film. She's working for the FBI in Atlanta. Yeah, she did not survive the fourth film in the fourth film, but it's a nice retcon. And... Yeah, I'm always happy to see Hayden Panettiere, whose name I've learned to pronounce since we reviewed Scream 4. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I called her Panicata, Panetteria, Panty. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I still don't know how to say it, but I like her. Yeah, I thought that she was, again, the freshest new cast member of Part 4, one that was feeling a little bit monotonous, quite frankly. She was something fresh about it. I don't have a problem with her blowing in, but FBI agent feels like a weird mix. If she was so into horror movies, is that the natural path? I guess we're to believe she's now Clary Starling. She had a brush with a killer, and now she wants to hunt monsters. Well, I mean, that was a horror movie, too, so why couldn't she draw inspiration for her life from that? Sure. And Gail Weathers, this is about the time that she blows in as well, that as they're coming out of the police precinct, we see that she's among those of reporters asking questions, and she can duck a right hook from Sam, but didn't expect it from Tara. And after seeing how empathetic Gail was in 4 and 5, it's weird to see her thrust back into the investigative reporter, I'm trying to get in your face and ask you questions, not be your friend and ask you off-the-record questions kind of role for her. What specifically gets said at the end of the last movie is, I'm not going to let these killers have fame. I'm going to let them die in anonymity, and I'm going to write a book about Dewey, who was someone I loved and someone that people didn't know. Well, guess what? No one's making a Netflix series about Dewey. Uh, She wrote about the killers, and she apparently said some pretty harsh things about Sam in that book, called her mentally unstable. And so, yeah, that's uh, now a a new rivalry. I think it's always helpful when the final girl and Gail don't get along, and there's a good reason why Sam hates her. It might have been cruel, but that's not exactly untrue. If you're seeing dead people in reflections, (laughs) you are mentally unstable. Agreed, agreed. Right, but she didn't, like, do anything mentally unstable. She just Mm. had visions or... No, no, watch that ending kill. I understand you want to make sure the killer is dead, but stabbing them 22 times, slashing their throat, and shooting them in the head, and then telling your therapist that you liked it? Mm. Well, okay, saying you liked it, however... That is like the number one rule of killing the killer in a slasher movie is you got to make sure he's dead. Right. Because how many times has Jason or Michael or anybody else gotten up and left or continued to kill after being shot? I mean, it was in the first Halloween. Michael got shot and they got up and walked away. I mean, he was gone. Jason got his head cut off and his body crawled towards his head. It happened in almost every Scream film. 
true enough. And yet I would also say they're referencing Bad Seed, the idea that because her dad was a serial killer that killed almost without motive, that that same desire could be in her veins. And that, yes, that the proof of that was that, yes, she killed Richie, but she liked killing Richie. And so, again, I think for some movie, you might even want to play the idea that she is the killer. But I think the way the formula seems to work now is when she finally has to defend herself in the climax, she's going to really enjoy picking up the blade. But we've got a lot of kills to get through before we get to that climax, starting with her shrink. And looking back on it, why is the shrink killed? I understand they're going to say that they killed Jason and Greg because Jason and Greg, after killing Sam or Weaving, were going to go kill Sam Carpenter, the character. Yeah. And her sister. And because the quote-unquote real ghost face of this film wanted that pleasure themselves, that's why Jason and Greg got carved up. But why kill this shrink? He knew too much. To plant Sam also as being evil and add to that? Yeah, he knew too much about Sam's mental instability. He was going to make a report that she was potentially a killer. He did make the report. We hear that from Dermot Mulrooney. Well... We heard that from somebody that was conspiring this whole story against her. So mm, maybe yes, maybe no. True, true. Unreliable. Yes. But he gets stabbed in the face through a door. And one thing about the Scream films that really hit me upon my rewatch of four or five and then seeing this one is those knives penetrate bone really well. Those are like super sharp knives. Usually for surgery, you need a bone saw to get through. But this. One knife can go right through your skull and into your face. Yeah. And again, I think it's just become this loving trope that you can get stuck six times and live. But yes, they can cut through doors and yeah, eyeballs. This guy's not going to make it. That was one of the best kills, I think, that they've had in this franchise. Because I don't think that they're particularly inventive or anything like Friday the 13th, sometimes Halloween. They're just kind of rote and getting stabbed, but this guy getting stabbed in the eye through the iron of his door, I thought was pretty good. Giallo, again, I think very much of something Argento mm-hmm. would do. I'll go ahead and say it. I think that this is grislier than we normally get. If that's a franchise rule that you have to do bigger, I think that the kills are a little bit more R-rated than they seemed like in the West Craven years. Yeah, I'll agree with that for sure. I think that definitely hits home when we get to the death of Quinn and the big apartment attack. I mean, the amount of blood in that scene is tremendous. Yeah. So, yeah, this one is a fun one. I didn't get to see this movie twice, but I remember in my initial viewing just feeling like, okay, she's on the phone in her room. The core four, as they've dubbed themselves, are all gathered around the kitchen table saying, we're going to protect ourselves. And irony of ironies, Ghostface is already in their apartment and ready to do their roommate. And Ghostface is just standing over her bed. It seems like anyone, no matter how enraptured they are in their phone conversation, would notice a Ghostface standing over their bed, jumping to the end. She knows he's there. She's working with him, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like, she's not unnerved at all. They have to play and stage a death because one, she did bring a guy home and I guess they had to kill him in the bathtub. And two, Danny, the neighbor across the way is the one looking in 
trying to warn her that she's about to be killed. So I guess she felt like, oh, I guess I have to act like I'm killed. Is that the reason? Honestly, I couldn't think of a real world reason for it. I just thought in a movie reason, you rule out Quinn as a suspect if she's dead, right? Well, yeah, obviously that, but she wouldn't need to do the theatrics that they're doing, or she would do them differently if she didn't know that she was being watched by someone who believed that she was a victim. That's very true, and I didn't even think about that. But here we're going to get a couple of deaths. Now, Quinn supposedly dies here. We get the death of the boyfriend in the bathtub, and we're going to get Annika, who is such a minor character that... We haven't even, I think, mentioned her since my plot summary, but yes, we're going to say Mindy has a girlfriend here in Annika, and she's going to have my favorite death of the movie. I really winced at this one. They have this scene, Stuart, you referenced it with the 3D. This is the only good 3D scene where Danny across the way has a ladder in his apartment. A really tall ladder that can stretch between the two. And as I have a fear of heights, the people crawling across that ladder, I'm really empathizing with them. And when Ghostface comes as Annika's the last across and starts to shake it, she doesn't just fall. She doesn't just splat on the cement. She hits a dumpster with mm. her face <laughs> yeah. and then hits. It's like the eye part of the face. It's just. Oh my God, did I wince and groan at that death. And then the close-up of her and the bruise around that face and the blood, that one really got me. Mm-hmm. And you don't like eye things either, so that's a little different for you. Who did this killing? Was it Ethan? It has to be, right? Either that or Dermot Mulroney, right? Uh, yeah, one of the two. Okay, but the one thing that I have to note about anybody who's done the ghost face killer who's been it... They always seem to be very fast-moving and agile, and I wouldn't peg Dermot Mulroney as fast-moving and agile. I mean, there's height issues, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can't consistently... I mean, you should be able to size up who the killer is just based on a, like, you must be this tall, right? Like, a, get mm-hmm. a Chuck E. Cheese <laughs> sign, and you can figure it out. But they fluctuate. It's part of the cheat of this, is that when we learn who the killer is, if they actually went back and filmed them doing the attacks previously, it wouldn't look right. Later, when Gail gets attacked, it's something to realize that it's Quinn killing her giant muscular boyfriend and throwing him through a bookcase. Come on. Yeah, and part of that's unbelievable because, again, this is just a normal human being, whereas, like, Jason and Michael mm-hmm. and Freddy Krueger are—I don't want to use the term supernatural, but— They are. Yeah, supernatural, then. They are, absolutely, yeah. And I don't buy that Quinn has the— or any of the three of them actually would have the strength to take down the muscular boyfriend like that. Yeah. So here's the thing. And this is the world that Scream has always operated in. That's a little bit different from any other slasher. It's also kind of a comedy, right? It's also like Ghostface trips on things and runs into walls and does pratfalls. So I think if it's not realistic, It's part of the comedy to think of these killers doing what they're doing once they're under the ghost face mask. It is not a series where you have a consistent supernatural attacker in the way that any other franchise would have. I judge Gail harshly for her boyfriend. (laughs) It's not right, maybe, but she was with Dewey, who had such a good heart and 
was not conventionally attractive, a little quirky looking, and now she's gone to this total himbo gym rat. I'm like, Gail, what are you doing? I mean, isn't that true to form when you break up? When you grieve something, you go for an entirely something different? That felt right to me. And she has Hollywood money because she wrote that book. Right. She is a star. Yes. She is still on the news, too. She works for Channel 4 in New York and has an Upper West Side apartment. So, yeah, I don't get the sense that they're serious. I don't get the sense that she's into him the way that she was Dewey, but she definitely is trying to move on and will give a speech to that. That should be said before her big death scene or attack scene, as we'll call it. She does have a moment of investigative journalism in which she takes everybody to the shrine, the killer's lair. Yeah, an abandoned theater that supposedly was rented by Jason and Greg, where they have a collection to be admired. I mean, as a collector myself, first of all, their displays are first rate. None are overly cluttered. They have plenty of space to display this. They have everything. They have the murder weapons going all the way back to the first Billy Loomis. They have every ghost face cloak and mask, which is how they're dropping them at the scenes. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was a telling joke that they were like, police forces are hurting so badly these days, they sell off evidence to I mean, make a quick buck. I mean, there may be some truth to that. You may be able to get all of this kind of, of merchandise if you so cared. What's funny is I could probably get a real murderer's knife cheaper than I could get a knife used in a scream film. That's correct. I believe that. But it's a nice Pomo moment. Like Kirby is looking at the knife that stabbed her in part four. And Samantha is looking at her dad's outfit and seeing Skeet Ulrich in the glass. And yeah, I think Gail has a nice moment where she tries to explain, you just try to move on. Like you can judge her if you want, that she could stay in a permanent state of grieving. But she's tried to find another family member. She's tried to find something to exist and to stabilize. And I think that's a good message for anyone that's experienced trauma. Tara is certainly looking for that. The big split between her and her sister is that her sister wants her to process what happened to them last year. And Tara is hell-bent on ignoring it and, and not letting it define her. Who's right? They both make a point. But then, yes, they do go to Central Park, you know, trying to use these iconic New York locations. And this is all planned by Dermot Mulroney, the police detective. I keep calling him the actor's name because Detective Bailey just isn't as memorable. And he has Sam and Tara out as bait. And Mindy rightly points out, this is how Randy died. Randy was in broad daylight with people all around him, and in part two, he was pulled into a van and stabbed to death. So just because they're surrounded by people does not mean they're safe. Mm -hmm. Not to mention Jada Pinkett Smith in a movie theater in part two as well. Yes, being in a crowd could also work against you. I think we'll see that in the subway scene. But yes, it is a callback to scenes they've had in previous Scream movies and I suppose Stab movies in which, yeah, the lead is baiting out the killer in broad daylight in a public park. But Ghostface is one step ahead of them. When Kirby does the phone trace, it leads all the way back to Courtney Cox's apartment. I do like the scene where Mindy is talking with Kirby and is like, 
oh, is this going to be the phone tray scene where it's keep them on the phone a little bit longer when then the killer hangs up 15 seconds before the trace? That is the one meta moment of movie commentary that I felt really worked because there were so many of those scenes back in the days of landlines. And Kirby's like, no, I can do this in a few seconds now. Yeah, that one was quite meta as far as her comments and her running commentary. That's probably the best that she's done so far. I like Mindy. I mean, again, I think that you need a character that know it all like this, someone that's sarcastic, someone that can actually laugh at the peril that they're in. She also has another moment with Kirby where they debate best Elm Streets, best Friday the 13th. Interesting that they believe the requel is on par with the original Candyman. I thought that was an interesting choice. Psycho 2, underrated. Agree with them on that. But Elm Street 1 is not the best. Just going to say, everyone knows it's Dream Warriors. (laughs) But speaking of Dream Warriors, yeah, Courtney Cox. It looks like this was the moment given to her to go out in a blaze of glory, right? Like this is obviously the end for her. This apartment scene, her boyfriend is taken out while she's tough talking on the phone and she has to run around out on the balcony back to her room. She's got a gun in the safe. She doesn't wait for the door to bust open to start shooting. She's looking powerful. I believe this is it for her. I thought this is where she was also going to die because, again, this movie seemed like it would be a great chance for her to exit the franchise, keep her EP credit and like hand the baton to the next round of people and it could be Tara and Sam from now on instead of Sydney and Gail. And I think she had a pretty good action scene though here. I mean, she did pretty good as far as giving Ghostface a run for his or her money. I assume it was Quinn. It's definitely Quinn because Ethan was in the van and the detective was close by to Sam and Tara. So it has to be Quinn. And by requel rules, you know, if I'm going to play that game, look at the Star Wars trilogy. They killed Harrison Ford in the first one, they killed Mark Hamill in the second one, they killed Carrie Fisher in the third one, which I believe was always their intent, even if... They kind of had to. Yeah. But I think they would have anyway, just because they were killing one per film. And so you killed Dewey in the last one, killing Gale in this one would have made sense. And this plays like a death scene. This plays like she is finally killed after six films. And, you know, you wonder how long Courtney Cox wants to do this, keep coming Mm -hmm. back. Yeah. Again, that like given that Nev didn't come back and she's not doing with David Arquette, Wes Craven's not behind the camera. This can't feel like the same experience for her. I guess on one hand, you could say, now I'm the star, or you can look around and go, why am I still here? And this does feel like a very nice, generous fight scene where, again, she even gets the knife away from the killer. She didn't anticipate the killer getting a shard of glass. I thought that was a real nice way of sticking her, was that she got the weapon away, she had the gun, but she didn't expect that broken glass to be her death. And they obscure it. Like, Sam blows in here, And the ghost face runs away. The EMTs are like back off. And I'm sitting there for several minutes going, wait, looking for confirmation. Did she or didn't she? We knew when Dewey died, he was dead. But it looked like Gail had the same death. But I didn't hear the words. And we will be waiting throughout the entire climax till we finally hear she's going to be okay at the end. We never see Courtney Cox in the film again. To me, this is she was dead. (laughs) And... You know, kind of like LL Cool J in Halloween H2O, 
where he died and then they had that scene at the end they filmed where he's okay here they're gonna drop a line in case they can get courtney cox back for part seven i suppose but Mm -hmm. again the fact that we never see her again she's as dead as kirby was yeah that line she has tell sydney he never got to me feels like a last line that definitely feels like We wrote it that way with the expectation. And then, yeah, Cox's agent called and said, okay, we'll play. We'll sign the contract for this amount of money and they could pay it. Definitely one of those last minute contract negotiations. But yes, we're in the climax of this film. It's mentioned and it felt weird. And now in retrospect, we know why that Detective Bailey, Dermot Mulrooney says, oh, I have the key cards, even though Gail was the one that had the key cards. He's like, no, she gave them to me. I was like, That doesn't feel right. Well, of course, now we know that this is his lair. But uh, did you guys have that suspicion as everyone is racing to go back to the shrine? Again, the moment Quinn died and he's weeping about his two children, I'm never trusting this guy. Yeah. And he's the one that says take public transportation. Oh, you're right. Getting into an Uber is much less dangerous than like getting into a super crowded subway (laughs) where everyone is dressed as pinhead, leather face. I saw Pennywise's balloon floating around in that crowd. I saw Samura Weaving's outfit from Ready or Not. Mm. And hundreds of ghost face. It should be said the news is reporting that the sales for that mask are through the roof because the killings have sprung up around New York. And so New Yorkers are just going to embrace that. And now we have this scene in which the group is broken up by Danny, it should be said, making him look a little suspicious. He pulls Sam onto a train before everyone could get in. And Mindy and Ethan have to take another train that is full of flickering lights and lots of ghost faces. And here I'm ruling out Ethan because Mindy is calling him ghost face and saying, get away from me and everything. And isn't that how it always is in movies is if you're calling it out so obviously it is not the case? Usually that is correct. However, do you notice looking back, he always had like a looking at her like a little bit evil, like looking down at her, you know, kind of look in his face on that subway. Well, I mean, she was insulting him all the time, but, you know. Yeah, but not like mad, but like. I'm going to kill you, Look, Did he do her? I guess he would have to. The dad couldn't have been there. And Quinn, hard to say. We cut away to the dad still at the station. So it's either Quinn and Ethan collaborating or Ethan having that mask and in the flickering lights being able to get close to Mindy and stab her. Did you think she was dead? I'm kind of torn. I thought maybe she was at least dead or serious injured. And I will be honest that when she came back at the end with some bandages wrapped around her stomach going, They gave me lots of drugs. Are you guys okay? I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. You were like stabbed and the knife was twisted. See, I think this has to be Quinn because we see Ghostface get off the subway and then is when Ethan sees Mindy. No, but that was another Ghostface. I mean, there's so many. No, it was the Ghostface that stabbed her. I'm 100% on that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So... It is strange, though, it's a misdirect that Ethan gets Mindy off the train and calls for some paramedics to help her out, you know. He actually saves her life. Yeah. Because I truly believe, having been on a number of New York subways during rush hour, someone could be bleeding out on that train and I wouldn't notice. 
That's correct. If the whole intent was to frame Sam, how does that help their case? It slows her down and takes her out of the mix as far as getting Sam and Tara. Okay, so yes, because, yeah, she won't be there when everyone else gets Mm -hmm. to the lair. Okay. Yeah. She would know that Kirby's not the killer, even though Dermot Mulroney is calling and saying... The FBI put her on leave. She's had mental instability. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. And that's all bullshit because he's not a real cop, but I believed it. I actually thought Kirby could be the killer. It made sense given the history of the franchise. Again, I feel like there are lots of plausible options. I haven't given up on Stu here. I mean, when I look at that TV and the set that fell on him and supposedly killed him, I was like, he died by TV? Mm, he's still alive. But yes, it would be really random at this point. You've introduced your cast of characters to suddenly say, I'm here. No, the countdown was to make Sam fully come to being as her father. That was what they were counting down. The number one killer they're talking about is Billy Loomis, as embodied by Samantha Carpenter. That's what they're hoping to see once they knock out Kirby, lock everyone in the room, and... Yeah, we have a lot of chasing around before we even realize there's three killers or two killers. I think there's some shenanigans running around this theater, throwing movie cameras and such. I love that when they're talking through all the people who played Ghostface, they go back to part three. And part three is the only one with a single Ghostface. And it's always been pairs. Well, here they have three Ghostfaces. So now it all balances out. Yeah, that is nice. And we see the two of them really, again, really looks like Chad is dead. He's flirting with Tara at the concession stand. Next minute, he's being stabbed, what, at least eight times in each side. Oh, my gosh. They, like, treat him like a pincushion. They're just like, boom, 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 boom. And they do it so fast. Yeah, but this series now has made it clear that, like, that's just normal. Like, if you're in a Scream movie, you are expected to withstand at least eight piercings in any vital organ. You mentioned these are horror comedies, and it is almost a joke how much they can survive. You know, in the first trilogy, it was a joke that Dewey would get stabbed really badly Mm -hmm. and always survive. And that was like an ongoing gag. But now it's like anybody can be Dewey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If it was just Chad, then I'd be okay with it because Chad could be the new Dewey. But the fact that Chad survives, the fact that... In the last film, Mindy got attacked, Mindy survives, Gail gets attacked, we're told Gail survives. Everybody seems to survive these horrible stabbings. I mean, I'm trying to think. In the original, was there a core four? We had Nev Campbell, we had Gail, we had... Randy. Dewey. Randy made it to the second movie and then videotaped for the third one. I guess he would be core four. I guess we could call it that. This feels different, though, because normally the teenagers exist to be body counts. And the fact that they're keeping them together and alive, I don't know, it it builds the bond. I do like these kids. It did hurt more to think that Chad was dead, that Mindy was dead. I agree. I actually felt bad for Chad. He was just finally making the moves on Tara. Not just making moves, but... It was the fulfillment of a long flirtation and then to get stabbed like that. It was, of slasher films, one of the deaths I mourned the most. Mm -hmm. But everyone's been looking at Sam to go psycho. We all know that she talks to her dad and grabbed his knife and seems ready for the infight once we see the detective and his two kids unmask. 
But yeah, it's gone without noting. Wednesday Adams, like Tara's creepy too. Tara's got plenty of spunk in her. And it shouldn't be a surprise that she also gets in on the bloodletting once we get into this final Carpenters versus Bailey's. See, I don't see Tara like that at all. She seems fairly innocent until you see this end battle in the movie. I don't feel that she has the same killer instinct that Sam has. You're surprised when she thrusts the knife in the mouth and twists it? Yep, that seemed a little bit much of what I thought of the character. However, it was kind of nice that she turned animalistic in a survival mode. Final girls usually do. And again, she looked like the opening kill. It's worth saying, also worth pointing out that she was the quote-unquote opening kill of the fifth movie, and she survived all of that. So... Yeah, I think that she's got just as much of savagery as her sister, even if she doesn't have Billy Loomis DNA. But this is a fun chase. You know who I really like in this, and I didn't expect to, but Quinn does a great crazy face. This is Liana Liberato, and just her, once she unmasks and going around, I found it very fun to watch her as a killer. Yeah, she gets some teeth knocked out and then, yeah, later shot in the head. She definitely endures a lot. I like the way she dragged her knife blade across the balcony railing. Like, yeah, she works in the pantheon of ghost faces. She's one of the higher ups there. Yeah, he's a virgin both in sex and in killing, I think. And I thought Kirby got taken out here, too. Again, I'm like, oh, they brought her back just to die again. But no, she is going to survive. She was supposedly shot by Dermot Mulroney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's got blood on her face. I like Kirby. I like Hayden Panettiere, and I think that Kirby was a nice addition to this, even if I did put her on the murderer list. But I like her. I think she did a good job. I think it was a nice callback, even though she technically should be dead. I'll say this much. She had more going for her than if this was who they obviously wanted, Nev Campbell. If Nev was back, and they had some passing line about she's going into witness protection with her husband, they explain it away. But obviously, if Nev had said yes, this would have been her and not Hayden. I think we're better off having Hayden. I think you're right. I agree. I would much prefer to see Kirby back in the next one than to see them mend fences with Nev, which, I mean, Nev kind of napalmed that bridge. Mm. I don't know that she'll ever return. Maybe she could be the opening kill next time. Everyone be satisfied. Give her the money bomb for one more scene, then kill her good, and we never have to play this game again. But obviously, the stars now, fully inheriting the franchise, was pretty clear last time. Now it's assured. Sam and Tara, yeah, take out this this Manson family. With Richie's home movies of Stab playing in the background, she really does one bad on Dermot Mulroney there at the end. Seems to enjoy it. Her sister has to pull her back again. Yeah, it makes me wonder, how could you justify that as self-defense? When the real police show up and are, like, trying to figure out and piece together what happened, 22 stabs and a bullet in the head seems like a lot of self-defense. That's when Mindy steps in and explains the rules of killing the killer in horror movies. That you have to make sure they're dead. And we get a nice little ending here, a little coda, where Tara finally, I guess the moral of the movie is go to therapy. Yeah, if we were worried about the overprotectiveness of Sam, Tara's agreed to do a little bit more self-care in exchange for getting more 
freedom. And she has a boyfriend. Chad survived. He's being hauled onto an ambulance. So love interest for her. And Danny comes blowing in to have an open relationship now with Sam. Uh, it seems like a yeah, pretty happy ending for everyone that matters. How did these people survive these stabbings, though? I mean, that was pretty brutal stabbing. It's become days of our lives where nobody's really dead, right? Like, the rule of the Scream franchise now is nobody ever dies. Yeah, I mean, I think that they will change, you know, right? At some point, they will take out one or more of the core four. But for now, if you're trying to build goodwill with a youthful audience, these four are important to establish. They need more time to connect with the audience. We spent so much time with the legacy characters last time. It's become their franchise. If Gail and Kirby don't come back next time, it would still be Scream because you have these four. Question is, can they continue to afford Jenna Ortega now that she's Wednesday Adams and getting a lot of acclaim? Yeah, if she starts pulling that I don't want to be here stuff, I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> but we have in credits a new song. They haven't done this since the 80s. I always love the idea that a pop star is going to do the horror-themed end song. It's Demi Lovato, who's had mental health struggles of her own. I don't know if this is a good PR move for her to be singing Still Alive. And we get to a post-credit scene, sort of, or at least Mindy mocking us for wanting a post-credit scene at the end. There's a post-credit scene? I'll admit, I heard Demi Lovato. I like Demi Lovato, but I didn't think there'd be a post-credit scene, so I left. Well, they turned on the lights. In our theater. It is literally Mindy just popping up and saying, not every movie has to have an end credit scene. So is that an end scene or is that just a postmodern deconstruction of it? Yes. You decide. So Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Scream 6? Marjorie. You know, I kind of dreaded this movie, but I found the last two of these actually to be better than the prior Scream films. And I like the addition of Dermot Mulroney. I feel that he had a bit of a Costas Mandalore vibe. And he kept raising his eyebrow like Costas Mandalore does in the Saw franchise. But it's not a horrible movie. It's not the best horror movie you'll ever find. But it's kind of funny in some parts. It's kind of fun to watch the mystery unravel, even if, you know, you kind of have your suspect lists. They do a really poor job. There's no reason for this to be in New York other than, I guess, to say that they escaped Woodsboro. I don't think New York added anything. I think the subway, they could have done that a different way. Same thing with the little bodega that they get attacked in. I don't think being in New York is the gimmick they thought it would be. I don't know that it actually drives a plot forward. I don't know that it adds anything to the movie. I mean, the subway scene could have been done in like a crowded mall, anything like that. The little bodega, again, could have been just a grocery store, convenience store, something like that. I don't feel it was really New York-y. That being said, it's probably not the worst of the franchise. It's probably one of the two best. And yeah, I mean, if you like the franchise, go and see it. If you want to see something new and different, go see it. Just don't have any realistic expectations as far as kills go or people surviving because this is not medically accurate. It is no human centipede. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) So that's a recommend. Second one for the series. Stuart. Game recognizes game. What is the best Scream movie and the best Friday the 13th movie? Part six, which you do not expect 27 years into a franchise with so many of the originators dead, disinterested, doing it in their sleep. 
You just don't expect it to get better. But sometimes fanboys, uh, this movie accuses them of being, you know, the killers. But the fanboys sometimes bring more passion, more skill. Radio silence. I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out there. The reason, Marjorie, you think the last two have been better is because they are better made. Radio Silence are better directors of horror comedy than Wes Craven ever was. And I went back and watched that original. It's got enjoyable scenes, but it's real sloppy in the way that it handles tone. And Tara and Sam, at least as compelling as Nev Campbell in the beginning, and much more so than in future movies. Yeah, I like their friends. I liked the New York location. I felt like the bodega scene with the shotgun was really fresh. Here's what I'll say. I'm not calling this a great movie. I'm calling this a great screen movie, which is to say that if you don't like this style of self-referential horror comedy, this is not going to be the one to convince you you should. It is following a formula, and some of the formula elements should probably go. I'm tired of the rules scenes. I feel like the opening kill was maybe the least amazing thing about this. The stuff that was so great in that first one with Drew Barrymore and Randy laying out the rules now feels like an obligation they don't need to do. But it's a screen movie, so they do it. I would say that this has taken that formula and really given us a very polished, consistent, gory, fun, good time. And so it's a green arrow for all screen movies, but this one is my favorite. Wow. Wow, I am floored. Why? It's so obviously better. See, and I found this film to be kind of... Middle tier scream. I think that I was pulled out of it by the number of survivors. I think that that really undercut stakes for me in this film. But I like the core four. Instead of having a final girl, you've got a final group. That's a nice change of pace for a horror film. And I do like who the core four are. Yeah. They just are fun characters on screen. And they do tie back as three of the four of them are blood relations to original film characters. So I'll agree with Marjorie. I'm not positive that the New York setting added a whole lot. I liked the subway scene. It came very late in the film, much later than I expected, given that it was a big part of the trailer. But overall, it still just had a Scream vibe to me. But I like the Scream franchise, and I really did enjoy the kills in this one. It's a definite recommend, but I can't say favorite of the series. Well, I'm interesting to see how you rank. In my mind, there are two kinds of Scream movies, the good ones and the meh ones. And the good ones have been 6-1-5, and the meh ones have been 2-4-3. Three has fallen in my esteem, and watching them all again, the problems of that movie became more glaring. But I, I would still give it a pass. I'll be honest, and I may have said this previously, I may not have, so I guess I'll be honest now, but I'm not a fan of Nev Campbell, and I think that tainted my view of the earlier movies, which is why I think the last two are better. Yeah. Well, and they're better made, too, I would argue. Yeah. Regardless of Scream 1 did it first, and the Drew Barrymore scene is the Drew Barrymore scene, but that movie is not great. It's got real tonal issues. Yeah, these are better movies, these new ones. I think both that are just named Scream are the best ones. But this one, yeah, kind of middle tier. I'd put it around Scream 2 territory. Given that the parallel is in Scream 2, the killer was Billy Loomis's mother. And now in this one, it's Richie's father. I think they're definitely paralleling the part twos there in that it's the... On a college campus again, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. 
again, they've studied the earlier films, but I also like the fact they don't feel so indebted to just be an echo chamber of doing what's done before. There's a real ideas about how to adapt this to a new age, starting with the viral fears of today's youth. Let me just throw this out there since this is, you know, kind of starting a new age of horror, possibly. Is it maybe that everyone won't die? I mean, that's kind of the elevated horror that we see is not everyone dies. But is it something that the core four is not just going to be the lone girl surviving anymore? I'll put it more succinctly. I don't know that this is about slasher movies anymore. A slasher movie was about watching people get picked off until there's one final girl. And I feel like this series, recognizing that slasher movies are not in vogue anymore, is trying to be more like a season of TV where, yeah, it's just like, I don't know, Gossip Girl or Riverdale. But that is it for Scream for now. Will we be back in just one year? I felt like one year is a fast turnaround. They did pretty good with Scream 6. I wouldn't mind if they took 18 months at least and put it out around Halloween next year. I think Scream 3 didn't come out as fast as Scream 2 did. Yeah, they had to find a different writer. They got rid of the original screenwriter because he couldn't come up with a concept. I think they know where they're going, and I imagine it will be a factory. Maybe not quite Marvel, but we'll get the next one soon. As for what we get soon, talking about factories, one factory that is not producing so much anymore, but... Still has a couple of last items on the conveyor belt that we're going to review. DC films with their previous iteration, still the Snyderverse. We've got Shazam 2 next week. Shazam was a nice surprise. I didn't expect much out of it. I think the superhero himself is kind of stupid. But they play into that and they made an enjoyable redo of Big, if anything. I don't know if I need a second one, but Helen Mirren as a supervillainess... That's an interesting choice. Yeah, so that will be on our main feed next week. Meanwhile, if you are a donor or a patron, this Friday is the last of the dystopia films. We are reviewing the Chris Evans movie Snowpiercer from the director of Parasite. Yeah, all aboard on this train. I think it ends strong, and it's a chance to look at all the dystopian fears that have been building for the last hundred years. You know, we've gone through 10 movies, so many decades of how we saw the world going wrong. I think that, yeah, Snowpiercer, the train, and the movie encapsulate a lot of them into a really good film. I hope you can join us for And one dystopian fear you should have is missing out on these podcasts. And our donation drive is coming to an end. You've only got a few more days left to donate. And then, yes, the shows will be available at an increased price through Podbean. But Podbean's made some changes lately. We still use them. It's still the only method of getting older donation shows. May not be the best method as you have to use their app and their website. You can't download. But if you want to download the shows and get them in whatever podcast app you use, donate to us via PayPal or join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash now playing podcast. And you can get these shows during the donation drive. All the details are at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It is your support that keeps us on the air week after week after week. And we could greatly use your support here at the end of this donation drive. Indeed. So Marjorie Stewart, thank you for screaming with me. And we'll be back next week with Shazam 2. That'll be a wrap. The sequel discussion 
to be continued. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Scream Retrospective Series. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> you can listen to other episodes of this series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. If you like scary movies, then head to nowplayingpodcast.com where you can find our retrospective reviews of other horror series, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Saw, and many others. More blood, more gore. Carnage, candy. Your core audience just expects it. As well as individual movie reviews of The Human Centipede, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. Stop it, Billy, would you, alright? Take any more. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Spice twist, huh? Didn't see it coming, did you? And you can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. It's all a movie, it's all one great big movie. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. So where are you? I'm going to take the party out. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes, and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you blame the movies! Movies don't create psychos! Movies make psychos for creative! Now Playing Podcast is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. See, we're about love, respect, and responsibility. A harmonica style is okay, right? Oh, yeah. Associate produced by Jason Latham. So, have I covered everything? Are there any questions? Any comments? You know what, though? Who gives a flying fuck anyway? The now playing Scream opening credits are performed by Jen and Arnie. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Now playing credits read by Brock. Not much of a story here, just a bunch of kids cutting it loose. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. My lawyer liked that. Not as much as I did. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2023. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Now you gotta die. Those are the rules. This is Gale Weather signing off. Now if you'll excuse me, I have some oozing to do. Kevin Smith's daughter? Is that the more famous <laughs> Harley Quinn for you? <laughs> <laughs>